you would, begin reading with me from our text in verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Pray with me. Father, once again, thank you for your truth, your gospel, for the sending of your Son, into our world to experience all of the calamity, all of the fallenness of this very, very difficult world. And again, never sinning. And then willingly embracing that cross for our salvation. May we be ever mindful of your truth. And Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As has been highlighted by our readings this morning, the Apostle Peter is very interested in our understanding that the gospel, that, that our salvation is a Trinitarian accomplishment. That God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit work in concert carrying out distinctive roles in bringing to you salvation. Again, it is God that has ordained our salvation and He is the one who has sent His Son into the world. The Son actually comes into our world and accomplishes our salvation on the cross and then it's the Spirit of God through using the proclamation of this thing called the imperishable seed of the new birth. It is the Spirit of God that takes that word and applies it to our heart and brings salvation uh, to us. He causes us, as Peter says, to be born again. Peter is also interested, notice the language that he uses, quoting the, the Old Testament. He, he wants us to see ourselves standing in some sense in continuity with the Old Testament, with the Old covenant saints even saying that the the prophets themselves they they saw a day in which there was the fullness of salvation accomplished and applied but they didn't experience and so they didn't fully understand but they were longing and living for the day that is now ours the the day of the new covenant but but he also wants us to understand something of a a disconnect or a discontinuity from these old covenant people. It seems as though God privileged Old Testament Israel, these biological descendants of Abraham, and promised to them all of the things that go along with being a great nation, a prosperous economy and a, a mighty military and a, and a well-functioning political system. 
but yet for those of us called under the new covenant, the new people of God, the, the, the people who know Jesus Christ. We're, we're called, like our Savior demonstrated, to a life characterized by sacrifice and service and, yes, even suffering. Not a life of prosperity and promise, but a life being afflicted as our own Lord was. And so we see here in verse 21, that first word, that for, Peter wants us to understand that what he is about to say has direct reference to everything that he's laid out for us in these uh, previous two chapters that Jesus Christ is our example. He's our example in that he calls us to share in this suffering. Peter writes in that first chapter that, that we may have to suffer for a while, that it is a, a fiery trial that will test our faith and refine that faith. And as Job wrote, we will come forth as refined gold, as the fires of all manner of affliction are brought to bear on the follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're called, just as Jesus set the example, that we are to, to follow in His steps and not live a life characterized by retaliation and, and bitterness, by, by uh, uh, deceitfulness. Even though afflicted, our Savior never succumbed to sin. You know, one of the things that's pretty characteristic about, of, of human beings if you wrong me, our first thought is what? I'll get even. I'll get even. Part of our fallen, Adamic, sinful nature. And Jesus, although he had never wronged anyone, when he was wronged, he did not retaliate. He, he suffered willingly. He, he, he embraced even the cross itself for that joy that was set before him, the joy of a bride that he would secure through his blood. And so he, he calls us to, to suffer and he calls us to holiness. You're not going to hear much about holiness in churches today. He's called to be consecrated, called to be separate from uh, the world, called as Peter says that, that since we're sojourners and exiles, we're to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against the soul. That is all of these base things that are deeply rooted within me that, that still rise up and, and afflict me and tempt me. I must keep watch because these things are at war against my soul. And so we are to be separate and consecrated for the service of God just as Jesus was. You know, Jesus himself prayed that, now, I want you to sanctify those who are going to believe through the proclamation of the, the word of these apostles. I, I, I'm praying specifically for them. I'm not really praying for the world. I want you to set them apart. Don't take them out of the world. Leave them in the world. They're going to suffer the things that the world does. But I want you to set them apart just as I have sanctified and consecrated myself for this great act of sacrifice for this accomplishment of salvation. So he calls us to a separateness of life. Again, we the church, 
we love to hoop and holler at the folks out there. But so many times, we must admit, if we're honest, that we enjoy the same things and have the same desires that those who make no claim to Christ enjoy. And so come out from them and be separate is God's word to us. And then we're called to faithfulness. Again, verse 23, Jesus, although called to the, to the cross, again, not my will, but, but yours be done, he entrusted himself. I don't, I don't understand how God entrusts himself to God, and I can't explain it. I just know this, that God, that God Jesus, the Son, entrusted himself to God, the Heavenly Father, and gave himself over to the, the death that had been foreordained before all worlds were created. He would suffer that death, and his Father would raise him from that death. That's trust. And so, again, in, in, a, in a similar way, we, we are to, to be faithful, we're to entrust ourselves to the to the care of our heavenly father again we're we're told here that that jesus is ultimately the shepherd and overseer of our soul he's he's watching over us he cares for us now the truth is most any religious system buddhism or uh, confucianism or islam or whatever can speak of christ being a a great example and in fact, maybe they can even say something of his uh, qualities or qualifications of, as the ideal shepherd. But let me tell you the distinctive of Christianity is right there in point two, that Christ is our substitute. In every other religion, man must do something in order to earn his salvation. Folks, Biblical, Christ-honoring salvation is the accomplishment of God and God alone at the cross of Calvary. It is nothing that we've ever earned, nothing that we've ever contributed. It is the accomplishment of our Savior who was our substitute. And again, Peter speaks of him bearing our sins. He bore our sins so that we could be redeemed out of the, the slave market of sin, that we could be set free from this terrible taskmaster of sin and Satan. And so he can say that we actually died to sin. When Jesus died on the cross, the mastery of sin over the believer was broken. Paul really fleshes this out. And, and what is kind of a difficult chapter in Romans chapter 6, but again, he outlines for us that sin does not, is not our master, doesn't own us in the way that it once did. And so because Jesus died and he conquered sin, not only have we died to sin, but we live to righteousness. We are, as Paul wrote, new creatures or new creations in Christ Jesus. We have been recreated. We've been regenerated. Again, the language Peter used... God has caused us to be born again. We talk about this occasionally. I think the average evangelical 
in the United States of America would sadly say that they would identify themselves as the own, their own cause of their new birth. That out of their heart of rebellion and sin, out of their heart of death and the trespasses and sin, they decided that they would birth themselves anew. Well, folks, at the end of the day, that's stealing some of God's thunder. He is the ultimate cause of our regeneration. And it's, again, with a view toward the work of His Son on the cross. There would be no interest. God would have no interest in working in your heart and mind. And again, so many times, again, in evangelical churches, we're all about our hearts, okay? And that's okay. But let me tell you something. God would have nothing to do to your heart for your heart if it wasn't for the cross at Calvary. There would be no internal working of the Holy Spirit apart from the cross at Calvary. And so we died to sin, and now we live. We live for righteousness. That is, the things that used to be boring and abhorrent to us, we now embrace. We now pursue. We now desire the, the righteous things of God. Why? Because he bore our sin. Because he, he took upon himself the punishment that was due us. And again, just one of the simple ways that, that, that I think about it. There was a decree of death, a death sentence, recorded in heaven for Tim Evans. And God placed it on his son Jesus Christ at the cross of Calvary. And that debt of sin for death was resolved at the cross of Calvary. Among other things that we can talk about, but that's, that's just one aspect of the substitutionary, atoning, yes, propitiatory work of Christ. We just sang about the wrath of God was satisfied. And, you know, this is why I get ticked off sometimes about Baptist is the editor of the Alabama Baptist writes an editorial and says that I do not believe that the wrath of God was poured out on his son at the cross of Calvary. I want to choke people like that, folks. In Jesus' name. I mean, you know, in the most loving way that I possibly can. But I want to strangle knotheads like that. Because God is justly angry about our sin. It was right for him to be angry about it. He would not be God if our sin did not anger him. And at the cross of Calvary, Jesus Christ, in his flesh, in his body, he absorbed the wrath of God in those dark hours. And so now we live to righteousness. And again, Peter goes on to say, and by his wounds, again, Reaching back to the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53, the, the song of the suffering servant, by his wounds we are healed. Now, I've, I've said enough, I'm not, even, I'm not going to flesh it out. I do not believe that that is a, a verse that can be taken to mean that God's people are always healed in this life. Don't believe it. it, it, it that's not, I think the primary implication of that verse is that our sin issue is resolved. The, the sickness of our sin is resolved at Calvary. Are people healed occasionally? Absolutely. 
And certainly our loved ones who have passed from this life, if they know Jesus Christ, guess what? They are healed in a way that's far beyond anything that we can imagine. So there is a, a real truth that there's physical healing in the atoning work of Christ. But it may not be applied in this life. In fact, for some strange reason, I haven't figured this out, everyone that preaches that, you know, if you've got enough faith, you'll be healed, at some point, evidently, their faith lapses because they die. Strange phenomenon, but, you know, go check it out. So we are healed by our substitute, by the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, uh, this morning in verse 25, we have a great and good shepherd. Jesus himself said, I am the good shepherd. And I, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, and they hear my voice, and they follow after me, and, and I lay down my life. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down, and I take it back up for my very own. He promises that he would never leave, nor ever, ever, ever forsake one of his sheep. And so our present identity is indeed we're the sheep of his pastor. Why do, does Peter and, and Paul and maybe other New Testament writers, why do they remind us that once we were like straying sheep, once you were dead in trespasses and sin, once you were walking in the ways of this world, you know, again, I, I, don't, I don't try to beat you up about past sins. But folks, you need to remember that when God saved you, he saved a sinner. He forgave much. It is, it, you know, again, when we, anytime you want to run your mouth about somebody out there doing this, that, or the other, Always remember, except for the grace of God, except for our substitute, except by His stripes we're healed, except for the, we were redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb, there I would go as well. God saves us. Doesn't mean that we can't speak to the issue of sin, that we can't call people out for their sinfulness, we can't warn them of the realities of hell and judgment if they do not repent. But we need to remember, too, that we're sinners saved by God's grace. And so we were once straying. We were once wandering away. And our present reality is we are indeed these, these chosen people, these, these sojourners that are, that are scattered throughout the world, but we've been sprinkled with the blood of Christ, setting us apart and identifying us as the people of God. And so Jesus is ultimately our protective shepherd that, that watches over us, that, that the, the, those lions that are lying in the, the brush for us, they can never destroy us. They can do some damage, but they can never destroy us because our good shepherd is greater than the roaring lion. I want to close in, in our preparation for the Lord's Supper with this. Turn in your Bibles to the great psalm that is maybe the most familiar of all the psalms. It seems fitting since our Lord Jesus identified himself with this psalm. Uh, turn to Psalm 23. 
the psalm of the good shepherd. It's interesting that Jesus is both the shepherd and he's the ultimate and final and effective and efficient Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Again, David writes of his Lord. David writes of the one, the son who would come after him. The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you're with me. You're my great and good shepherd, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Your almighty weapons have secured my eternal destiny. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever.